Father's Day and the message that God would have me to preach, uh, began just thinking of my dad and everything he's done to provide for me and give me a Christian home to live in. Um, and it was really tough figuring out where to go and what to preach. And as I began thinking and just praying and thinking through biblical characters and uh, God led me to, to Nehemiah chapter 4. And if you have your Bibles, we're going to turn there. I want to open up just with a, a short, small illustration just to get you thinking about, and your notes are provided in your bulletin as well, just to get us thinking about this topic of fighting for our families. And a lot of times as, as men, we have to understand that how our children view us is how they're going to view their Heavenly Father. If you are a father and Father's Day, I've always been told that you can be a little harder on dads and Father's Day than you can on Mother's Day. Mother's Day messages are loving messages. Father's Day messages are sort of harder. Um, but when we think of our dad, ultimately that picture is what we see God as. If our dad was an abusive dad, if our dad was a mean dad, we automatically begin to think of God as that same way, as a mean dad, as an abusive dad, as a the dad that doesn't care. And if we've got a father and men, if we're the fathers that are loving and caring for our kids, and yes, we're going to discipline them, yes, we're going to correct them when they need correction, we're going to view our Heavenly Father in that same way. So I began thinking of a dad or a mom, um, and my mind went to a park ranger. And any good park ranger is going to tell you that if you're going through a park, if you're going through... Uh, Yellowstone, if you're going through Black Mountain, wherever you're at, if you're going and hiking, they tell you, any good fire park marshal, will, park ranger will tell you, if you see a baby cub in the woods, go up and touch it, right? No, they're going to tell you, stay as far away from that baby cub. The baby cub not, may, may not necessarily be harmful to you. They don't really understand what they're doing. But the moment you approach that baby cub and you try to touch that baby cub, daddy cub, daddy bear, mama bear is going to come out and they're going to kill you. Okay, they are not going to let you get near that child. And so that baby is protected and knows that mom and dad maybe be up in a tree somewhere, maybe down by the river, but they know as soon as something happens, they're going to come and take care of them. And so when we think of our families, is that how we are? Are we fighting for our families as much as a baby, cubs, mom and dad would be fighting for them? If they were threatened, if they were hurt in the woods, they would chase down the person that hurt that baby cub and they would make them pay. And so today as we think, and I hope we think that we or feel that same way and so passionate about our families that we are willing to fight for our families no matter what. So that's what I've entitled our message today in Nehemiah chapter 4. We're going to read 14 verses. So if you'll stand with your copy of God's word and we'll begin reading in verse 1. The Bible says this, But it came to pass that when Sanbalt heard that we had built the walls, he was wroth. He was mad. He took great indignation and mocked the Jews. He spake before his brethren in the army of Smyrna, Samaria, and said, Why do these feeble Jews, what do these feeble Jews, will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end to the day? 
will they revive the stones out of the hopes, heaps of the rubbish which are burned? Now Talbot and Amni was by him, and he said, Even that which they built, if the fox go up, he shall even break down their stone walls. Hear, O God, for we are desperate, and turn their reproach unto their own head, and give them for a prey in the land of captivity. And cover not their iniquity, let not their sins be blotted out from before them, for they have proved thee to anger before the builders. So built we the walls, and the walls was joined together unto the half thereof. For the people had a mind to work. But it came to pass that when Sanballat and Tilbop and the Arabians and the Amorites and the Ashtonites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up and that their breaches began to be stopped, they were very wroth. And conspired all of them together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. Nevertheless, we made our prayers unto God to set a watch against them day and night because of them. And Judah said, The strength of the bearers of the burden is decaying, and there is much rubbish, so that we are not able to build the wall. And our adversary said, They shall not know, neither see, till they come into the midst of them among them, and slay them, and cause the work to cease. And it came to pass that when the Jews which dealt, what dwelt by them came, they said unto us ten times, For all the places, hence ye shall return unto us, they will be, be upon us. Therefore said I in the lower place, behind the wall, in the higher place, I set, even set the people after their families with their swords and their spears and their bows. And I looked and I rose up and I said unto the nobles and the rulers and the rest of the people, be not ye afraid of them. Remember the Lord, which is great and terrible, and fight for your brethren, for your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Father, we want to come and ask your blessing upon our reading of your word today. Help us as we look to what it means to fight for our families. And I pray, Father, that you would give us wisdom today, give us guidance, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So as we look at this story, Nehemiah is about to rebuild the walls and he hears these enemies talking bad about his own country and he begins to get upset he begins to get angry that they were talking bad about what was going on in his own country and so he began to get a little fire started inside of him and i began to, as i studied through this i pulled out three points uh, verse four it says this hear O god for we are desperate and turn their reproach under his own head and give them for a prey in the land of captivity. And as I began looking at that, I began seeing that Nehemiah in this first point began asking God to open up his eyes, to open up your eyes. Now as fathers and as parents, we must get to the point where we open our eyes to the world around us. And we must get to the point where we are looking at the people around us and what they are doing to necessarily our families, to our country, to our nation. And we begin to say to ourselves, are my eyes open? Nehemiah said here, hear, O God, for we are desperate. We are despised. We are needing you. When is the last time we said before God and said, God, we need you? Open my eyes so that I can see the perfect vision for my life. 
So as I began doing that, I began looking through that, this first thought came to my mind, get your vision checked. I have had glasses since I was eight months old. My mom's got pictures of me with baby glasses. I think my mom still has my very first pair of glasses when I was eight months old. They're really, really small. And so I got diagnosed with um, a lazy eye, an autism, not autism, um, uh, whatever it's called, astigmatism in my eye, uh, one of my eyes. And so at eight months old, my mom noticed it, took me to the doctor, and they gave me uh, glasses at eight months old. So I've always had glasses on my entire life. And the most weird part of every year of my life is going to the eye doctor. Okay, how many of you have been to the eye doctor before in your life? All right, most of us have been to the eye doctor. So you know this awkward experience I'm talking about. This guy gets about three inches from your face, and he begins to breathe really awkwardly. He begins looking in your eyes. It's like they all breathe out of their nose. And they're staring into your eyes, and you can't really look anywhere because there's a bright light in your eyes. And I've had to do this every single year for 31 years of my life. And it is extremely awkward going to the doctor, going to the eye doctor. And they'll ask you to begin reading these letters that aren't in order, that are different sizes. And I mean, when we read an alphabet when we're kids, it's A, B, C, D, E. But when we go to the eye doctor, it's not that easy. They put it in different sequences. And it's, it's really confusing as a young kid. And I've taken my kids to the eye doctor as well. But a lot of times they'll say, okay, you can't quite see that line. Your vision isn't quite good enough. So we're going to help your vision out. We're going to give you glasses. And as you get older, you may need glasses just to read. And so all of a sudden, as we begin to not see the vision around us, we begin to get help for that vision. So I want to ask you this. Is your vision big enough for your family? Are you looking at the big picture for your family? Nehemiah began to say here, these people are coming and destroying the walls. They're coming to destroy my family. I have to open my eyes. I have to stop looking at the small things. He was in the palace. He was under royalty. He had things taken care of him. His vision was narrowed until he began to hear the words of the people coming after his family. And his vision was opened. I wrote this down in your notes. What will matter in 100 years? In your life, what will matter in 100 years? When you ask yourself, in 100 years, I don't think anyone in this room will be alive. I don't think anyone in this room will still be in existence in 100 years. And so what will matter? What are we investing in right now for 100 years from now? Helen Keller said this, the only thing worse than being blind, because Helen Keller was blind and deaf, is having sight with no vision. How many times do we have sight but not vision? We have sight for our family. We have sort of, we're, we're guiding them and we know that tomorrow they have school or they have day camp or they have summer camp or whatever it may be and we have that sight for the next day but we don't have vision for 20 years down the road. And Nehemiah is challenging us, what is it that our vision is set on? I wrote these things down, four things that don't qualify as vision. Ignorance does not qualify as vision. If you are a parent that says, you know what, if I just don't know what my child's doing, it'll be okay. 
That is not a qualification of vision. Giving your child a phone at 13, at 10 years old with zero restrictions on it is not looking out for the best well-being of your child. When they have apps and they have everything on their phone where they can do whatever they want, that is not vision for your family. Wishing does not qualify as vision. Just sitting there at night and saying, man, I really hope when Brody gets older, he's going to do good and just wishing that he's going to be a good child. Just wishing that, that, that things are going to turn out well. That does not qualify as vision. Fear. Well, I'm afraid that someone may come and, and do something to my son, so I'm going to do something. That does not qualify as vision. Providing. And this is a hard one for me. Providing for your family does not qualify for vision. I'm a provider. I'm a guy that, that has to get the job done. My dad is a provider. I learned it from my dad. My dad worked third shift his entire life, 40, 50, 60 hours at COSA, and now he works at Freightliner. And providing is a good thing. But just because you provide, that is not giving vision for your family. And we as parents, as, as fathers, as mothers, we must look at ourselves and we must say, these things, sometimes we rule our family with ignorance or wishing or fear of providing. And God says, that is not how you fight for your family. The way we fight for our family is in verses 7 through 8. And it says this, but it came to pass that when all these nations, he listed four or five of them here, heard that the walls were made up and the breaches were being stopped, they conspired together against them to fight to hinder it. And I began to think, that Nehemiah saw that, and he saw the war. He saw the war coming. He saw people coming to attack him and his family. That is vision, is seeing what's around us. When you open your eyes to begin to see the opposition coming, and you begin to see those things, you begin to take defensive actions, and you begin to fight back. Most of the time in our life, we see the physical enemy. We see the girl deceiving our sons. We see our sons deceiving girls. We see things around us, people trying to manipulate our kids and peer pressure. And we see those things happening, but that's not the real battle. The real battle is said in Ephesians chapter six is what I read before, that there is a spiritual enemy out there that we cannot see. We do not fight against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against spirit, against Satan himself. And when we begin to see the war against Satan, and ultimately Satan is the one that is trying to destroy our families. Satan is the one that is going to try to insert himself into, his, into your family and to destroy your family in some way, shape, or form. And when we begin to see that enemy in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, should have left my Bible open there, but I'm going to read it real quick. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, it says this, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, and against rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. That is the war that we as a church and we as families must obtain to say, I am going to fight against that. I'm going to fight against Satan coming in and destroying my home. I'm going to fight against Satan coming in and deceiving my mind to try to destroy my home. I'm going to fight against Satan coming in and to try to deceive my children from destroying my 
home. So I want to ask yourself, what are you fighting against right now? Are you just fighting against the things that you can see? Or are you actually fighting against the spiritual battle that is against your family? The second thing I want to look at is, not only do we need to open our eyes, but we must pick up our weapons. We must pick up our weapons. It is okay to see the war coming. It is okay to have vision, to be able to see the the enemy attacking your family. But if you don't ever pick up a weapon to fight against them, are you really fighting for your family? If someone's trying to break into your house and you walk in and someone is trying to do something bad to your wife, are you just going to stand there and do absolutely nothing? No, you're going to be a man and you're going to pick up a gun or pick up a weapon and do something to fight for your family. And so God says there are weapons for us to pick up. When a man is in war, when a young man, an 18 or 19 year old goes to war for the first time, there are a couple of things that happen when the war begins to happen. When he's in a bunker and the shells are coming and the bullets are flying, there's three things that happen to a man. The first thing is this, he freezes. It's what they call shell shock. And all of a sudden the bullets are flying and and things are getting dangerous and he just grabs his gun. He's had months and months and years of training, but he just grabs his gun and he just stops. He just freezes where he's at because he doesn't understand what's going on. And some of us are in that position. We've frozen because we're shell-shocked at what Satan's doing. The second guy, after those months and months and years of training, he sees the war coming and he says, you know what, my, wife is, my life is more valuable than anything else, so I'm getting out of here. And he turns and he runs away and he flees. Some of us have fleed our families and maybe not physically, but maybe emotionally or spiritually. The third man, that, that same guy, 18, 19 year old, when the bullets began to come, he doesn't freeze, he doesn't run, but he picks up his gun and he begins to fight for his brother and his sister beside him. And he begins to think of his family back home and he begins to fight for them. And so I want to ask you, where are you at in those three pictures? Have you just frozen and you're like, ah, whatever happens, happens? Have you picked up your gun to run backwards or have you picked up your gun to fight forward? The Bible says that the God gives us weapons to pick up. In Ephesians 6, where I began reading this morning, he goes through the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation and, and the sword of the spirit and the shield of faith and our feet shot and the bre- all the things. He gives us these six things. And those are good spiritual weapons. And that's another different totally sermon. But at the end of chapter 6, verses 18 and 19, I think that's where it really ends up. And I think that's really where I can't preach this whole sermon for these weapons to pick up. But it, he gives us three key things in verses 18 and 19. I challenge you to go home and read them tonight and study that out. But the first thing he gives us as a weapon to fight is prayer. It's to get on our face before God and to spend time in our prayer closet alone praying for our families. Every night before we go to bed, I've said this ever since I've gotten here. You guys know this. I'm sure you could probably even tell the story if I call people up here. Every night we sing a couple of songs to our kids And we pray over our kids every single night. We pray over the stump toe that Jade had yesterday. We pray over the upset stomach that Brody has. We pray over whatever it may be, but we show them and we demonstrate in a moment of togetherness that it's okay to pray. And it's okay to pray together. And it's okay to pray out loud. 
And I'll have sometimes, Allie will pray or Brody will pray or Jade will pray. And at dinner time, we have different part of our family members pray because we want to model that it is okay to pray at any given time. The other day I was putting Brody to bed and we had already prayed and he came in and he said, Dad, he said, I'm just not feeling well. He said, can you just pray for me tonight before we go? Because normally we pray together, all four of us. And then I'll come in and I'll sing a song and I'll tell him I love him and we'll go to bed. He said, Dad, can you just pray just for me tonight? And so I went in his bed and I'm like almost bawling my eyes out. My son's asking me to pray for him. And so I laid down with him and we prayed and he hugged me and said, I love you, Dad. I love you, son. And those are the moments that when we use that weapon of prayer, and it begins to transpire into their life where they want to pray, where they want to have that relationship with God that you have modeled for them. The second weapon in verse 18 of chapter 6 of Ephesians is worship. Worship. Now, this isn't 30 minutes before the sermon where we come in and sing a couple of songs and then we have our message. That's not worship. It is worship, but that's not what it's talking about here. It's talking about a time where we are giving supplication and thanksgiving to the Lord. Where we are worshiping God for the little things. We're worshiping God for the big things. We are just praising Him for the good things in our life. That's the worship that it is here. And then the last thing is this. In verse 19, it talks about the truth. The truth is the most powerful weapon that you can have in your life. When you take the truth... And you apply the truth in every situation in your life, in every question of your life, in every moment of your life when you seek the truth, that is the weapon that will prevail over anything. Because Satan only has one trick up his sleeve. Satan is a one-trick pony who can only do one thing, and that one thing is to lie to you. And Satan will come in and he will deceive you and he will lie to you. He'll lie to your kids. He'll lie to your wife. He'll lie to you to get you to think that that's the truth. And if you can only hold on to the truth, you will be able to recognize when Satan is telling you those lies. You will be able to realize that what Satan is saying and trying to deceive me right now is a lie. And I can't trust a lie because I know the truth. And when we have truth in our life, young people, church, we begin to see God working in our lives because God works in truth. His word is truth. He is truth. And when we say that we are only going to stand for the truth, Satan has to flee. Because Satan cannot live in a truth-filled world. He can only live in a world filled with lies. And when we give way for Satan to lie to us, when we give way for Satan to deceive us, he's won. And so the weapon that ultimately we can grab onto is God's truth. And we must fight for God's truth. We must pour God's truth into our children. We must do those things. So the first thing, we must open our eyes. The second thing, we must pick up our weapons. And then the third thing is this. Remember who is on your side. Remember who is on your side. It's not your wife, which she should be on your side. It's not your children. It's not your family. It's not your pastor even though they should be on your side. But remember that God is on your side. Verse 14 says, And I looked up and I rose up and I said unto the nobles and the rulers and the rest of the people, Be not afraid. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord is here for you. 
Remember the Lord is on your side. And when you remember that, and you remember how great and how awesome he is, then go fight for your brethren. Then go fight for your sons, go fight for your daughters, go fight for your wives. Because that is the moment in our life where we understand that God is on our side. Now put in your notes, if Satan can convince you that you can't win, most of the time you're going to give up. When you begin to think, I cannot win against this battle, you're going to give up. I've coached football for many years. I coached for three years in Idaho, and I've coached, I coached one year this past year. And I can see in a football player, after that first kickoff or after that first play, if they have determined in their mind, we cannot win this football game, and their heads begin to bow, and they have already been defeated after one play. Because they have convinced themselves in their mind, we cannot beat this team. The team for AC is Wataga. And there's like, over these last couple of years, they can't beat Wataga. And the whole two weeks of practice leading up to Wataga was like fighting and fighting and fighting. Are we going to be able to beat them? Are we going to be able to do anything? And then all of a sudden, that first play happened. We thought we maybe had it. And then they put a touchdown in. And all of a sudden, I saw the guys on the sideline. And they understood and they thought, we can't win this game. We're done. And what happened? They lost the game. Because if they are convinced that they can't win, most of the time you give up. Most of the time you get to the point where you say, I can't do it. Now maybe they don't give up physically. Maybe they're still out there and they're still doing everything they can. But maybe emotionally they've given up. And in our lives, and sometimes as, as husbands and as moms, we maybe haven't physically given up. Maybe you're still in the home. Maybe you're still there, but emotionally, you've taken yourself out of the situation. Spiritually, you've taken yourself out of the situation. And you've given up on those areas. We must become a family. We must become a church family that belong to each other. I love how it says, fight for your brethren. Fight for your neighbors. Fight for your loved ones. Fight for them. And then verse 20, I didn't read this, but I'm going to go to it. Verse 20 says this, In what place thereof, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, restore yourselves to you as God will fight for you. When you hear the trumpet, restore yourself back to where you were at because God is on your side and he's going to fight for us. As a church family, we must at times blow the trumpet. We must at times say, I'm struggling in this area. My son is struggling and I need help. That's why we have Sunday schools. That's why we have small groups here. Because when we get to that point where we say, I can't do it anymore, I need y'all. And that church family comes together and God says, you know what, I'm here for you. I'm going to build you up. I'm going to help you because God is bigger than we can ever imagine. We must get to the point where we understand that God is on our side. I'm going to conclude with this. In 1 Peter 5, 8, it gives a great illustration of who Satan is. And it's a very familiar verse in Scripture. It says, Satan is as a roaring lion seeking, can you quote it with me? Seeking whom he may devour. And we have that verse, and as I begin studying that this week, a couple of words stood out to me. 
The first one was this. It says, Satan is as a roaring lion. Nowhere in that scripture does the Bible say that Satan is a roaring lion. We know who the roaring lion is. He's the lion of all lions, and his name is Jesus Christ. But the Bible says that Satan is as a roaring lion. He is an imposter. And he is here to make us seem like he is a roaring lion. We just got a new dog. His name is Boomer. You may have seen him. And if you come up to the church and you're in the parking lot, he thinks he's a 40-foot massive Great Dane that's going to bite your head off. And he's going to bark and bark and bark until you get to him. And he's just going to be this nice little puppy. He thinks he is the most ferocious dog out there. That's what Satan thinks. Satan is as a roaring lion. And when we begin to understand that he is an imposter and we put him in his place, he goes away. The second part of this verse, it says that he is seeking whom he may devour. When we hear that, we think Satan's already beat us. He's already devoured us. But I'm pretty sure the Bible says that seeking whom he may devour. It's not a guarantee. It's not saying that he will devour you. It's not a done deal. It's only if we let him. If he intimidates us, if, if we trust his lies, he begins to devour us. But if we put him in his place and we tell him who he is, he has to flee. We must fight for our families. And when we fight with God on our side, the devil must flee. I'm going to close with this illustration. Ladies, if you'll come and start playing as I talk through this, and we're going to go into invitation. When you walk into a dark room, I'm sure you've walked into at least one dark room in your life. And you walk into this dark room, what is the first thing that you decide that you're going to do when you walk into that dark room? Heard it a couple of people. Turn the light on. Okay, you're going to turn that light on to get rid of the darkness. And when you flip that light switch and the light doesn't come on, does anyone think in their mind, well, the darkness won that time. The light just wasn't powerful enough. The darkness has, has taken over and won. No one says that. They look at a couple of things. Maybe the power's out. Maybe the light bulbs burn out. And maybe you need to go and change that light bulb or fix the power. Maybe it was disconnected from the power and was never given power to begin with. And in our life, when we begin to think of that, and we begin to take that analogy and apply it to our life, if there's darkness in your life today, it could be because you're not connected to the power. It could be that you're so far removed from the power that the light has no effect because the light isn't in your life anymore. I'm not saying you can lose your salvation. I'm just saying that there's mud covering the light and it's not powerful anymore because you haven't cleaned it up. So when we flip that switch, maybe you flip the wrong switch. Maybe you walked into the room and you flipped the switch for the fan and the light never came on and you were like, well, there's no more light in my life. God says that the light's there. We just have to access it. And in our life, there's darkness in our life. But the power of the light of God is most powerful than any other darkness that we can ever imagine. And when we fight for our family, God says, I'm on your side. I'm going to help you with some key things. So I'm going to pray for us. We're going to have a time of invitation. Maybe you want to grab your family and just come down and recommit your family. Maybe you want to come down and just...
pray for your family. Maybe as a young person, you want to come down and just thank God for the dad that you've been given. Maybe you want to come down and pray for your future family one day. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's you're like, hey, I don't even know this whole Jesus that you're talking about. I want to know him. Come down. I'll talk to you.